0: Good morning, everybody. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Every adult in the room has probably experienced some period of extended difficulty in your life. Have you ever gotten to the end of one of those times where you've just gone through the most brutal experience that you've gone through in many years, and you think you finally reached the end, and you're just at that point Or you feel like your head's above water, and then something else comes along. Another trial arrives. The hits just keep on coming. Well, last week we began working our way through the second half of the book of Acts, and Paul had just been brutally stoned till the point they thought he was dead, which resulted in a return to the church in Antioch, likely for him to take some time to physically recover. And as soon as he gets there, To this city of Antioch, they see that the church is doing well. They give a missionary report and they explain what the Lord had been doing through them in uh, their mission journeys. Uh, They reach back to this capital city of Syria, Antioch, and you need to know that this church was a healthy church. It was a, a church that was large, it was in a large city with a diverse population, and from what we know of the names of the people in this church, the church itself was also quite diverse. And the church seemed to be thriving. It was large enough, financially stable enough, and missionally minded enough that they sent out Paul and Barnabas and funded them for two years on a highly expensive missionary journey. And we saw last week that they rejoiced with Paul and Barnabas when they returned, and they heard all the wonderful news that the Lord had done on those two years. Now, the state of the church at Antioch had likely never been better. But things were about to change as false teachers began to arrive from Jerusalem, claiming that they had authority to require the Gentiles to receive and act upon uh, Jewish customs in order to be saved. The hits just keep on coming. So follow along, starting in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, as we see how the Lord uses Paul and Barnabas and others to guard his church against heresy and legalism. Follow along as I read the word of the Lord. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and to Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, "'Brothers, listen to me.'" Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written— Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, "'Although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements.' "'that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols "'and from blood and from what has been strangled "'and from sexual immorality. "'If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. "'Farewell.' "'So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, "'and having gathered the congregation together, "'they delivered the letter. "'And when they had read it, "'they rejoiced because because of its encouragement. "'And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, "'encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words.' And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this text. Father God, we come together today and I ask that there would be no pretense in our approach to the word that we would all, each and every one, lay ourselves down before the word, humbly ready to accept what you have to teach us today. Father, I acknowledge that there are some very challenging things in this text to understand, and I pray, Lord, that you would help me to be accurate as I present them. And Lord, I pray that today that we would get the main point of this text right, so that it might be transformative for us. God, I ask that the gospel would be well understood and well believed by everyone here, and that is a work that only you can accomplish and we pray that you will do that today in Jesus name we ask amen as we continue to hear the word of the lord from the book of acts keep in mind that we are carefully trying to observe what the apostles what the apostles are doing because we want to learn from them how to properly reach the lost with the gospel it's our earnest desire like what do we want We want to be able to fulfill the Great Commission. We want to make disciples of all nations. Often in the book of Acts, we learn from positive examples. We get to see what these guys are doing, and we say, yes, that is how we should be as well. However, in this portion of the book, we're actually going to learn what not to do. We are going to see them correct some mistakes. We are going to see what happens when legalism begins making its way into the church. So in order to understand what's going on in this passage, it's absolutely necessary that you keep certain things in mind as we start off. First, you need to remember that at this time, when this controversy arose, Jerusalem was the epicenter of Christianity. For obvious reasons, most of the Christians in Jerusalem were Jews. However, the gospel had been spreading across the empire, and many Jews and Gentiles were being saved. And there is no modern comparison that we could make in relation to how Jews and Gentiles lived separate lives but lived within the same culture, lived within the same cities. They had the same physical spaces, but their lives really did not overlap. Their places of worship, their homes, their formal acts of culture, their friend groups, these things did not mix. And what we're seeing take place in this chapter is the early church learning how the Jews and Gentiles were supposed to live together with one another in unity, not as two distinct churches, but as one body of Christ. The second thing that you need to remember as we begin making our way through this text is there was no New Testament at the time of this controversy. The books had not been written yet. In fact, the people who wrote those books were in this meeting for the most part, and so if any of us were to have a question like this one, we do not need to have a counsel like they had. We have the book. We have the answers. We have the scriptures. So if we were to ask a question like this, we would go there to find everything that we need for life and godliness. But in these early days of the church, the Holy Spirit was leading the churches through the teaching of the apostles. Now you may have noticed that the legalistic teaching was going on in Antioch But those people who were teaching these things came from Jerusalem. That was the root of the problem. They were people who were not sent out by the church. They were not given the stamp of approval, yet they took it upon themselves to go to other places, traveling far and wide, to convince people of their perspectives. These were the ones that Paul and Barnabas were discussing the problem with. In fact, it says that they entered into no small dissension and debate which leads me to believe they probably had a knockdown, drag out argument on a regular basis. Not physically, of course, verbally. But Paul and Barnabas then were sent to Jerusalem to discuss this problem with the apostles, both because this is the source of the problem and because that's where the authority of the church sat. The third thing that you need to keep in mind is that the Pharisees that we are reading about in this text are quite different in one major way than the Pharisees that you find in the pages of the gospel. The Pharisees that were in regular verbal battles with Jesus, the ones who sent him to the cross, they had one major difference. They did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. You see, they believed that Jesus was a liar. They did not believe that he was the Messiah. They did not believe that he rose again. They did not believe that in order to go to heaven, you had to trust in Christ. They believed in none of those things. Yet, the Pharisees that are mentioned in this chapter would wholeheartedly agree with all of those things that I just mentioned. They were claiming that you had to come to God through Christ. The problem is that they were claiming that in order to get to Christ, you had to first go through the door of Judaism and the Old Testament law. Basically, they were saying, if you want to become a Christian, you have to become a Jew first. Now, I want you to understand that these guys are very commonly referenced in the New Testament. I want you to know who they are, because we're going to bump into them quite a bit in the pages of our New Testaments. They are called the Judaizers. Remember, the book of Acts is being written to a Gentile named Theophilus, And that's probably why the details that Luke includes of this encounter focus more on the word given to the Gentiles and less on the words that were spoken to the Pharisees that claimed circumcision was required for salvation. Acts 15 doesn't tell us whether these men are saved. It doesn't tell us a whole lot about them at all. It just tells us that they claimed to be saved and that they held to false doctrine. However, later on, when these same people went to the churches that were planted by Paul and Barnabas, and began to spread these false doctrines, Paul writes about the events of Acts chapter 15 to warn the churches in the region of Galatia, saying to them these words in Galatians 2, 1 through 5. He writes, Then, after fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. In other words, Paul humbly submitted himself to the apostles and said, I just want you to know this is what I'm preaching. I want you to know that this is what I believe. And he compared his gospel with that of the apostles and they did in fact align. Notice, although Acts chapter 15 verse 5 says that these were brothers, Paul refers to these Judaizers as false brothers and spies and slavers who are here to capture you and sell you into bondage. In other words, they profess to be brothers. They profess faith in Christ, but they did not believe the true gospel. Theology matters. Doctrine matters. Truth matters matters and getting the gospel wrong is the worst kind of deadly mistake that someone can ever make so let's ask four questions to our text today we're going to ask what is this controversy what evidence was considered and what makes it so consequential and finally what is the conclusion we'll start by asking what is this controversy all about well, verse 1 tells us that some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers that unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, imagine for a moment that you are a member of the church at Antioch and you had been saved by the grace of God. You were transformed by Him from being a raw pagan and a worshiper of all sorts of other false gods, to then turning and believing in the one true God of heaven and trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And then one day, a visitor shows up to your church. He comes in. He gathers with you. He's got a nice smile on his face. He starts talking to you and telling you, I've traveled all the way here from Jerusalem to worship with you. And you say, oh, what wonderful. Why don't you come to my house you're one of our brothers. Let's worship the Lord together and let's fellowship over a meal afterwards. And so he, you invite him to your house. He comes over and he asks you, Sir, can you just tell me your testimony? And you share the good news of what God has done. Side note, commercial moment. Uh, This Wednesday, we're going to have an opportunity to hear eight testimonies of God's saving grace, 7 p.m., Wednesday night. Hearing the testimonies of other people, how God has saved them, is one of the most encouraging things that we can spend our time doing. I strongly encourage you to join us Wednesday night to hear what the Lord has done for so many. Now imagine that you are one of these and you are sharing this testimony with someone over your own dinner table, and the person says, oh, wait, hold on a second. I didn't hear the part about when you scheduled your surgery. (laughs) And you're like, wait, what? Um, I'm kind of confused here. What are you talking about? Oh, 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 wait, I see. I see the confusion. You need to understand, I'm not trying to be Jewish. I converted to Christianity. Not if you didn't get the surgery, you're not a Christian, the guy replies. Well, you can see how this would create a lot of consternation in the church. Thankfully, God had provided Paul and Barnabas to be there to handle this debate, but this matter had to be addressed in Jerusalem by the collected apostles. They were escalating this to the highest level of earthly authority. So let's now consider the argument closely. The Jewish believers, as they were called, the Jewish false believers, as Paul would also call them, had always considered circumcision to be the chief physical indicator of those who were part of the covenant people of God. This goes all the way back to the covenant God made with Abraham when God told him in Genesis 17, 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Do you see their point? If God has required circumcision all of this time, If that's necessary to be part of his people, why should we believe that anything has changed? What these Judaizers failed to comprehend was that the covenant practice of circumcision was always supposed to be an outward visual expression of an inward work of God. Moses explains it this way in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. He says, "'And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart.'" And the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul, so that you may live. If you are transformed in the new covenant, you get transformed the same way you did in the old covenant, by God doing a miraculous surgical work in your heart. The inward work of God has always remained the same. However, the outward operations of worship under the old covenant have been fulfilled. Track closely with me for a moment because this is key. The laws regarding circumcision came to a conclusion for the same reason that the food laws or the laws about your beard hair or laws about mold in your house, they were all brought to a conclusion because all of them pointed to Jesus. They were types and shadows, but Jesus is the substance. The second question that we need to ask today is, what evidence was considered when they were bringing up this question in in the, for lack of a better term, the court of this council? Well, we've already seen the claims of the Judaizers. However, there are three important pieces of evidence that are laid before the council, and I want you to hear each from these eyewitnesses. First, let's turn to, to the expert witness of Peter. Peter stands and addresses everyone by telling the story of how God first broke down the barrier of separation by sending Peter to share the gospel with Cornelius and his family. He says, brothers, verse 7, You know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We believe that, they will, that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So notice that Peter does not just tell the history of what happened with Cornelius. Uh, it's important to know that that happened like between 10 and 12 years earlier. This is something that had, had occurred, and people in the church were fully con, cognizant of the fact that this had happened. They knew that that dividing wall of separation had been broken down, and that many who were Gentiles had come to Christ He not only tells them the story and reminds them that it happened, he also makes it clear on multiple occasions in the speech that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile before the Lord. But it is not because they all have the same surgery, it's because they have all been saved by the same grace and by grace alone. Pay really close attention to the end of his speech. Notice the order of his declaration. He says in verse 11, But we believe that we will be saved. When he says we, there, he's meaning the Jewish people. We will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. That is really interesting. Because if Peter was primarily addressing the Gentiles, he would have said it the other way around. His point is to plainly tell the Pharisees here in the room, your circumcision has nothing to do with your salvation. If you got saved, you did not get saved by any work of man. If you want to get saved, you have to get saved the same way the uncircumcised Gentiles do. Because we all walk through the same door. So they don't need to become like us. We need to be like them. It's also highly significant here that Peter uses the phrase, quote, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, remember that the Jews had a very particular set of regulations about what could and would make them ceremonially unclean. Gentiles were by nature considered unclean. But just before God sent Peter to preach the gospel to that first Gentile convert, just before he sent Peter to go and share the gospel with Cornelius, what did he do? He showed him a vision of a bunch of unclean animals that came down from heaven on a sheet. And he said to Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter flipped out. And he did that because he says to the Lord, I have never in my life done anything like that. I would never eat something unclean. And do you remember how God responds to him? He says to him, Peter... What God calls clean, let no one call common. This is very intentionally linked to what happens as soon as he comes out of that that vision. As soon as he comes out, people come from Cornelius' house, they come and get him, take him to Cornelius, and Cornelius, the one that Peter would have viewed as unclean, then hears the gospel and is saved. What God has called clean, let no one call common. It's important for us to understand that At this portion of their lives, many of these people who had grown up like Peter were accurately worshiping the Lord through obedience to the Old Covenant law. That's how their lives began. But they lived on the hinge of history where God sent his son to fulfill the law, and at that time, when the law was fulfilled, it was no longer active over his people. The Old Covenant has been brought to a conclusion We do not live under the Old Covenant law. So God told Peter, what God has made clean, do not call common. Peter says to these people in the meeting, these people have been made clean. In other words, don't you dare call them common or unclean. Peter is drawing that intentional parallel here for us. The Gentiles are no longer unclean if they are in Christ because God has purified them. That is a pretty strong case from an expert witness. But let's hear the witness that comes to the stand next. It's actually two men. Verse 12 says, "...and all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Saul, as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles." Now, there's a reason that this part of the testimony is not long form for us. There's a reason that Luke doesn't give us a whole lot of details here. And the reason is simply because if you want to know what happened, if you want to know the events, these miraculous details, just take your Bible and turn one page back, and you will find in chapters 13 and 14 all of the wonderful details that they were sharing at that meeting. But there is an important point to be had here. God was verifying their ministry... Through miraculous works. The key point is not that they were doing works. The miracles are never the main point. The point is what the miracles point to. They were not doing these works, as it says, among the Jews. They were doing them, quote, among the Gentiles. In other words, these miracles that were performed were not performed by our desires or intention. They were performed because God is the only one who can do a miracle. He did this work and he did them... These works to show the Gentiles who he is. Now, it's at this point that James, the half-brother of Jesus and the head of the church in Jerusalem, stands up to make his case. He says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, or Simon Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take, them, uh, to take from them a people for himself. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who were called by his name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Uh, do you see his point? Do you get what he's doing? This is a brilliant move on the part of James, the half brother of Jesus, who is leading the church in Jerusalem. The Pharisees were going to the Old Testament and they were saying, look, the Old Testament tells us we have to do this. The Old Testament says that this is a requirement to be part of the people of God. If they want to come in, they need to go through the process of circumcision. But then what does James do? He goes to the Old Testament. He goes to the book of Amos and he makes it clear what it says, that the Messiah was going to come in order to make a tent that the Gentiles could come into. That word tent is really significant because it's the word for tabernacle, the place of worship. He says, look, the Messiah is going to come and make a tent where the Gentiles will worship with us. God has promised that he's going to provide a place where he will dwell with them. He promised, even in the Old Testament, that the church is not going to be exclusively Jewish. It will be Gentile. Well, you're probably here listening and you're like, okay, like, I'm not really worried about this whole circumcision thing, to be honest. And, like, I don't care so much about the Jew Gentile breakdown thing. I get it. Like, I have no problem with the fact that that dividing wall has been broken down. Which brings us to our third question well, what's the big deal? Or what makes this so consequential? And here's where you need to pay close attention because this is where it certainly applies to every one of us in this room. Imagine for a moment that my kids put up a lemonade stand next summer right in front of our house. It's the hottest day in July. And people are sweltering. Air conditioners are going out left and right. And so my kids decide to make a buck. And they put out a lemonade stand. Except this lemonade stand is a little different than you might expect. It has a big sign on the front that says, Free. So a line of cars begin to pull up with parched parents and begging children. And they form a line. And the first guy in the line says, I would like two, please, and Asaph, my 10-year-old, says to him, I'm sorry, uh, we only serve people with red hair. Now, I know you can't see it on this side of the sign, because over here it says free, but on our side of the sign, there's a little fine print that says, if they have red hair. So I'm sorry, if you want to have free lemonade, you need to get red hair. And he's like, look, I I don't have red hair. And to be honest, that is a very rare thing to have red hair. So like, I don't know if anybody in this line qualifies. And then Ace is like, don't worry about it, no problem. Uh, We have hair dye, five bucks. Petra's right there with the chair. It's pretty simple. If you really want this lemonade, all you gotta do to get the free lemonade is to buy some hair dye, sit there for a few minutes, and we'll give you the lemonade. No big deal. Do you see the problem? This means that the lemonade is only free to those who either got their red hair from their parents or they did some extra work at their own expense to gain it. There are two main reasons why circumcision question here is of utmost importance, not only in this day, but for us as well. First, because this is legalism, we'll just call it what it is, Legalism robs people of the gospel. It is nonsensical to claim that we are going to receive salvation by the free grace of God and then add anything else to it. If you add anything to grace, then immediately it mutates into something else altogether. Romans chapter 11, verse 6 says it this way, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise grace would no longer be grace the gospel of jesus christ is the good news of salvation that salvation in and of itself is free it is free because it was costly for jesus it is free because he paid it all he paid every last cent of my enormous sin debt so that i could go free If you are not a Christian, this is the promise of salvation, that if you will only believe that Jesus came to eliminate your sin by dying on the cross, rising again, and ruling as your king, then you will be saved. And you might say, well, that sounds too simple. Maybe you're like one of those people that just drives by, and they see the sign free, and they just want nothing to do with it because it just sounds too easy. sounds too good to be true, but it is true. That's exactly what the Pharisees thought, though, Here's how Paul refuted their false teaching in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. He says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that if that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Notice that this terminology of putting a yoke on the person is the exact same language that Paul uses in Acts chapter 15, verse 10, when he says, "'Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test "'by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples "'that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear?' "'Nobody fulfilled the law except for Christ alone.'" The problem with saying that you get to Christ through the law is that you would be required to keep all of it, and we all know that that is impossible. It is a load too heavy to bear. To require any kind of legalistic barrier to entry in order to be saved immediately nullifies the message of grace found in the true gospel. If the lemonade is only free to those who work for it, then it's not really free. If salvation is only available to those who work for it, it's not only not free, it is unobtainable because there is nothing but the blood of Christ that can actually wash away sin. But not only does legalism rob people of the gospel, it also robs God of His glory. Take your finger and just glide through this chapter again with me. Look to verse 4. It says, When they came to Jerusalem... They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Wait, it doesn't say all that they had done? Like Paul and Barnabas did a lot of stuff, but it doesn't highlight what they had done. No, they put it in the right context. All that God had done with them. He gets all of the credit for the first missionary journey. Jump down to verse 7. Brothers, you know that in the early days... This is Peter speaking... God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. God not only chose to send Peter, but also that the Gentiles should believe. Verses 8 and 9. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Here we see three distinct actions that God does. He bore witness, he sent the Spirit, and he cleansed their hearts by faith. Nobody else could do that. Peter couldn't do that. Paul couldn't do that. You can't do that. I can't do that. God does that. Verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles, now, this is not isolated terminology. I just, I just break this down because this is the portion of the, the Scripture that we're in. This is the way the Scripture always speaks about the works of God. It's not giving credit to the individuals. It's not giving credit to the men and women in the church. The credit all goes to God. God is the one who does the work. Therefore, God is the one who gets the credit. So if you are saved by grace plus anything that you do, then you have reason to boast. You would have something that would set you apart from the rest of the population and make you superior to them in one way or another. So, our last big question of the morning is what is the conclusion? Well, the apostles listen to the Holy Spirit and make three requests of the Gentiles. Notice, these have nothing ultimately to do with getting saved, they're not placing anything in front of them as a step to becoming a Christian. Rather, they are particular ways that would produce unity as they are asking Gentiles to lay down their rights in a few particular areas to find peace and unity with culturally Hebrew people. What are these three requirements? We find them in verses 28 and 29. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Now, one of these things is not like the other. Sexual immorality is always clearly sinful. Uh, Some scholars believe that when they include this, you need to understand the word there is not like a specific aspect of sexual sin. It it is all-encompassing of what the Jewish understanding of sexual mores were. So, some scholars believe that what this means is, look, in some of these areas where the gospel is going forward... It is acceptable in their cultures for brothers and sisters to get married. That's not acceptable in Hebrew culture. Let's just tell them clearly that is not acceptable in the kingdom of God. So perhaps that's what they're getting at. Maybe it's not. But some believe that that aspect of incest is perhaps what is being pointed out directly to them in this uh, command. However... There are nuanced passages about the food sacrifice to idols and food regulations that we find here in this book. If you want to know a lot more about that, you can look at 1 Corinthians. We're not going to delve deeply into this today because we just don't have the time to thoroughly examine it. But if you want to talk about these things, I'd happily discuss them with you. But the main key is that you should see they are not asking, what they are not asking them to do. They are not asking or demanding that the Gentiles become Jewish. They are not requiring them to adhere to the old covenant law in order to follow Christ and praise God for that. Uh, What I want to do here is close our time in these verses with one simple application that finds its form in three distinct ways. Uh, When you are sharing the gospel and seeking to make disciples, you need to make sure that you are not like the negative example of the Pharisees in this passage. We need to make sure that we are not putting any kind of roadblock in front of people and demand that they conform to us in order to follow Christ. And there are three main areas where we have a tendency to do this. First, there's political legalism. I just figure why not just go ahead and kick the hornet's nest right now at the front of this application section. There are many people in our neighborhood who believe the exact same way that you do about politics who are also going to hell. There are also many people who disagree with you about politics who are going to heaven. Now, I'm not telling you that you, ha- you should have no care in the world about what goes on in government. I think you should vote your conscience, and I think it's important that Christians are active in government. However, when it comes to proclaiming the gospel and making disciples, don't ever begin with an attempt to conform someone to your political persuasion. Don't put a roadblock in front of them that says, look, I want you to come in, but first you need to change that bumper sticker on the back of your car to the bumper sticker that's on the back of my car. If you want to be in my church, that's the way it's going to have to be. Now, if you're looking, um, I don't have a bumper sticker on my car, so don't you're not going to find it. There's the goal of our church is not to get someone in our neighborhood to vote the way that we do. Like, sure, I have strong convictions about politics, and so do you. And you would love it if other people voted the way that you do, and so would I. But ultimately, I would prefer someone to be in heaven. I would prefer someone to be in the kingdom of God. And I should never put a barrier of entry into the kingdom by saying somebody must vote the way that I do. That's political legalism. And there are other aspects of that, but we'll leave it there. Secondly, there is cultural legalism. As the gospel spread around the world, there has always been a tendency to want to convert people, not only to worship like you, but to adopt everything else that you do as well. Here's an example. Uh, several years ago, I was communicating with a missionary from the uh, International Mission Board, which is the international branch of the Southern Baptist Convention's missions organization. Uh, this man was a missionary in Italy, and I was, he was stationed in Rome, and I began communicating with him, and I was talking to him Uh, About his mission's work there, and he began explaining some of the difficulties there because of the cultural distinctions. And there is a policy within the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, that their missionaries are not permitted to drink alcohol. And also, at that time, there was also a regulation you are not permitted to have any in your home. Now, this is important to understand. The problem with that is that in Italy, wine is basically the cornerstone of all social gatherings. And sometimes people drink to excess, and that is bad, that is sinful, but often they are well within the boundaries of acceptable indulgence, and even so, this missionary was explaining that in order to invite someone into his house, he first had to explain to them why they were not permitted to bring any wine in to their home, nor, he included, were they able to drink wine if they wanted to follow Christ. That is a barrier that is dangerous. That is legalism. That is keeping people out of the kingdom of God. That is placing a limit on the scriptures and a limit on the gospel that the Bible never gives. There is no biblical warrant for that kind of requirement for salvation. Drunkenness is a sin. Abstinence from alcohol is wise for many people. Cultural legalism is destructive to evangelism. And to missions. Now, most likely this is not the kind of cultural legalism that you would enforce, but we are uniquely situated at a time and a place where we are a cultural melting pot. You do not need to go to Italy or another part of the world in order to find people who are culturally different than you are. Levittown is a place where you can find people quite distinct from you, and that should never be a barrier to proclaiming the gospel freely and faithfully. Don't make someone like you culturally convince them of the gospel. Thirdly, there is ritualistic legalism or ritual legalism. There is no one-to-one kind of legalism like the Mosaic law in the Old Covenant. There's nothing quite exactly like that. However, there are many things that we could see as similar parallels. I highly doubt that any of you are trying to persuade your unsaved family member and friends to schedule a circumcision uh, sometime in the near future. I don't think anybody's like, hey, if you want to be a Christian, this is what you've got to do. However, there are many religious rituals that people will attempt to place as a requirement of salvation. Not too long ago, someone from our church asked me why it is that I often bring up the Roman Catholic Church while I am preaching my sermons. They rightly notice that I have a tendency to make note of any time the text displays a counterpoint to some aspect of the Roman Catholic religion. They are correct. I do that. For example, in our text today, we see Peter was not the first pope. How do we know that? Because Peter is in this first council in Jerusalem, and he is not the one that gives the verdict. No, he actually gives the floor to James, the half-brother of Jesus, who then is the one who makes the call. He is not the chief officer in Jerusalem. He is not the first pope. The Roman Catholic Church is wrong. Now, why do I do that? I say things like that all the time. Why do I focus so often on Roman Catholicism? I want to do just a little experiment here. If you are or ever have been or if you have parents or grandparents who are or were Roman Catholic, please stand for a moment. You, your parents or grandparents have a Roman Catholic background. I don't know the percentage here, but I'm going I'm to venture to say this is over 70%, maybe maybe over 80% of the people in the room. Go ahead and take a seat. Thank you. Why do I often speak about these things? I do so because it can be very difficult to shake loose the ongoing perspectives that can be absorbed by a legalistic church or a legalistic culture, or a legalistic false religion. One scholar named Howard Hendricks Hendricks grew up in the 1920s and 30s in a Protestant church that was rigidly legalistic, so much to the point that his parents told him that if a woman ever put on fingernail polish, they were condemned eternally to hell and there's nothing they could do to change it. Pretty legalistic, rigid church. He said, quote, I repudiated my legalism intellectually and theologically in 1946. But now, in 1982, I am still wrestling with it emotionally. We pick up more than we realize by way of observation and instruction. If we were in a heavily Hindu area, I would be speaking much more often about the danger of Hindu rituals. But being that we are where we are, I will often highlight the danger of believing that we are saved by grace plus anything, plus confession, plus baptism, plus communion, plus sacraments, plus penance, plus good deeds, plus church attendance, plus generosity, plus indulgences, plus a Mary statue in the yard, plus a necklace of beads around the rearview mirror, plus a nativity set on the lawn, whatever you want to include in the list of things that you think might get you there, whether that's Roman Catholic or whether that is just a false Christian. Faith plus works does not result in salvation. It is grace alone that causes us to come in. And then, if you are in Christ, your life will begin to conform to the right way of living. It is by grace we are saved through faith in Christ. And then he begins to work out the details in our lives. Grace plus anything nullifies the gospel. Grace plus anything equals nothing. The apostles understood that, and they taught it. When we seek to make disciples, we give them the good news, and we let God clean them up. He is far more interested in the growth of His people than you or I will ever be. So let's faithfully sow the seed of the gospel without any unbiblical stipulations built in. Let's ensure that God receives all the glory for His work. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, I pray that You would help us to be a people that are free from the hindrances of legalism. Whether that be something that we had learned previously uh, from another church, from another Uh, way of, of false worship, or whether that be something that we have picked up on our own misunderstanding. Lord, our hearts often tend toward legalism, and I pray, Lord, that we would never, that we would never set a barrier in front of anyone claiming that they had to jump through our hoops to come to you. Lord, if we have ever done that, I pray that you would forgive us. And Lord, I also pray that you would help us to be wise. As each person in this room goes forward into their sphere of influence this week, so that they might be proper examples of Christ, that they would display Him by the way that they live, that they would be proper pronouncers of the gospel, that they would proclaim Him where they work and where they live. Lord, I pray that they would be perfectly prepared and well-equipped to go forth with the good news, and that you, by your power, would indeed use the gospel, use your spirit to cause people to come to Christ in saving faith. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and King. Amen.